back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. I love the saying, sheep turn grass into wool. What's your superpower? Not only because of the message that sheep have amazing transformative capabilities, but also for the suggestion that wool is truly a unique and amazing fiber with certain characteristics that man-made synthetics simply cannot match. The benefits of wool clothing were first recognized centuries ago, but even today, science is still learning about the capabilities of this fiber and the various management, environmental, and genetic factors that influence its growth and properties. Wool certainly has the attention of our guest today, who is an assistant professor of sheep production at Montana State University and is leading numerous research efforts to further our understanding of this incredible fiber. To visit with us about his latest work, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chris Posberg. Thanks for being with us here today. Thanks, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure. Now, Dr. Posberg, my introduction of you was pretty brief. And uh, your story, even though you're in Montana, it didn't start in Montana. So uh, for our listeners, can you give us a little bit more background about you came, how you came to be in the position that you're at today? Great. Uh, again, thanks very much for having me here, Jake. And yeah, my story starts a little bit further east than most. Uh, so I grew up on a small sheep farm in central New Jersey, where my dad, he brought home two bottle lambs when I was seven. So similar start to a number of folks. Sure. And uh, they were in our kitchen for about a month. Um, lost one, the other one made it through. And then uh, we started to breed her, grew up through 4-H, uh, showed market lambs. And then about halfway through my 4-H career, we brought some Romneys in. So the original one was a Dorset, got a bit more involved with uh, Romneys and kind of that long wool fiber. And then from there, I was looking at school and figured to go for animal science. So I went to Cornell University for my undergraduate in animal science there, working with uh, Mike Tony in the Cornell sheep program there. And then I went on to pursue my PhD there as well and started to shift research into looking at the complex traits within small ruminant production and specifically the genetics and genomics of that. And I ended up finishing that up in 2020, where then I had applied for this position and was fortunate enough to receive it. So I started here in August of 2020, looking at all aspects of really cheap production. Uh, we have the Montana Wool Lab here. So that's where a direction of my research program is going to investigate more wool quality and wool production traits, uh, as opposed to just a, a genetics-focused genetic, genetics program. Sure. Well, that's great. And, and we really appreciate you taking the time to, to visit with us today. I think we've got a really interesting discussion planned. So our listener audience, you know, they may have varying levels of experience with the value of wool, uh, both historically and, and currently. So for a little context, would you mind, just before we dive into specifics, would you mind giving us a, a brief description of wool production in the U.S. and, and where the industry kind of currently stands? Yeah, absolutely, Jake. So you can break it up into a number of different aspects. Uh, you know, you've got your commercial arm as well as kind of your more niche markets. Uh, so that on the commercial side, this is mostly reflected by larger producers and larger ranches that are producing a large quantity of wool, whether that's uh, fine wool or or coarse wool, whatever their production, their particular breed that they're raising is, and that then get will be you know, sold to a wool broker or wool buyer and, you know, eventually combined into a larger lot and such. And, 
you know, what's really nice is, you know, wool is produced pretty much across the country. Uh, and it depends on where you're at in the country in terms of uh, what type of wool is being produced. So a lot of our fine wool, so this are fibers such as uh, coming from breeds such as Merino or Rambouillet, your finer fibers are produced mostly in the West. It tends to be a, a more uh, suited environment for raising that type of fiber sure. as you work your way east or on the kind of the Pacific Northwest, you might have some more uh, breeds with some more Romney influence. So a bit coarser fibers, uh, just because they're a bit more adapted to those wetter environments. And, you know, in terms of wool prices right now, you know, fine wool prices are doing okay. Uh, they've been kind of holding steady. There's been a little bit of decline from the Australian market here the past few weeks. Uh, unfortunately, on the commercial side, there isn't much demand right now for some of those coarser fibers. And that's led to quite a bit of a, a price gap between, you know, our fine fibers around that 20 micron to fibers that are around 30 or so. Uh, and a lot of that is kind of, you know, dependent on the Australian market, unlike most of our other commodities, since we're benchmarked to their to their market. Um, and, but for the most part, there are, you know, given kind of the world we live in, there's a number of different opportunities for folks. You know, there's a number of products that are being made recently that haven't been historically. So folks are looking into sure. using wool more as fertilizer as opposed to producing just a textile or or using it for carpet or, or things like that. So I, I think, you know, currently a lot of our, our fiber is still going into textiles and clothing and things like that. But I think there's still some opportunity and definitely some folks looking into some of these other uses um, into how wool can be used for other things such as improving soil quality and, and things like that so, as a fertilizer. Sure. And so you mentioned, uh, you know, fine wool versus some coarser fibers. Then also, you know, the end products differ, whether it's clothing or some other type of use. And so I know the answer to my next question is diverse and could probably go on for 20 minutes. But, you know, just briefly, what what are the factors that determine the value or the price of, of wool? And, and I think this also sets us up for the other things that you're going to talk about later on, too. Yeah, absolutely. So the main you know, like what I like to teach in my students uh, in our sheet management courses, there's a ton of different factors, like you said, Jake, that influence the the quality of or the value of that wool. And it, depending on the market, it's going to change. So for most of our commercial products, really what's determining that value are the micron or that fiber diameter. So how thick that fiber is, as well as then the yield. So as the wool is growing on the sheep, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that ends up in it, whether it's the grease and the lanolin that the sheep's producing, but it also accumulates dirt. You might be feeding a lot of hay and that gets in there. So the yield is just after you wash the fleece, how much is left? Um, so the higher yield, the less dirty or the cleaner your fleece was, so the better price you're going to get. <coughs> Excuse me. There are a bunch of other secondary factors that play into the value of wool. So this involves color, the length of that staple, the strength, uh, whether there's other types of contamination um, from vegetative matter or from polypropylene twine. And, you know, those play a larger role. Um, if you're going more for hand spinning, then it might be based more on feel, which isn't a factor that we can really uh, objectively measure right now. Uh, so there's a lot of different factors that impact that value. Okay, cool. So back to your, your research, you know, what are sort of your overarching goals of, 
the projects that you've got designed and the information that you're hoping to learn? So really our goal with, with the research I have planned and what we're currently doing is trying to, you know, take it two different ways. So one is just improve the overall quality of the fleece. So is there a way where we can do kind of minimal input to improve overall quality, whether that's making the fleece finer or increasing that yield, as well as just improving production. If we can produce more with you know, the same amount of resources or fewer resources, that makes our industry more efficient and hopefully then makes it a bit more profitable for producers to, to grow wool. Okay, cool. Well, you mentioned several characteristics a second ago, fiber, uh, diameter, length, strength, uh, you know, the list kind of goes on and on that determines the value of wool. Uh, and I also know that you have several projects that are looking at these different factors, and we're going to go through several of these. And, and you and I visited ahead of time. And one of the ones that really struck my attention uh, because it sounded really neat was your work with the microbiome of wool. Uh, so... Could you give our, our audience a little description of what a microbiome is and, you know, kind of briefly what your research uh, entails looking at the microbiome of wool and why? Okay. So, yeah, this is probably one of my more exciting projects in my opinion, too. So I'm happy to talk about it. And if I go too Perfect. long, Jake, just let me know. <laughs> nope. We're good. Uh, so the microbiome is, you know, when you think about your animal or even us as people, you know, yes, we have our genomic DNA. So that's kind of what makes us us. And then you factor in an environment. But, you know, there are microbes all around us. There's microbes inside us. And what more and more research is saying is that these microbiomes play a role in how certain traits develop or how health and disease are progressing in certain things like that. So you know, this has become a really hot topic in the research field. And particularly a lot of the focus for microbiome has been focused on the rumen or the digestive system for our ruminants. And that makes sense because there's sure. a lot, host of different right. microbes within the rumen that, you know, play a large role in, you know, the ability of those animals to function. And then there's been some other work. Uh, so I remember some human work that I was listening to back in grad school where, you know, you have your skin microbiome and based on that through some forensic science, they were able to match up, you know, if somebody walked into a room and then walked out, they could test the environment for that microbiome and match it back to an individual. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little crazy when you think about it, but, you know, we've got microbiomes everywhere. So my thought with this is, well, we could look at the microbiome in wool and looking at the literature, there's been, I think I only found like two or three papers and they were relatively older and really only looked at, yes, we can measure bacteria. Yes, there's a difference based on where we sample on the animal. Uh, or I think the last one looked at like two particular species of uh, microbes within that fiber. So... What we're planning to do and we what we did last week we took some wool samples from across the body of a number of lambs and we're going to track them throughout their first year of life till their first shearing and we then you know take that wool sample we'll extract the microbial dna from that sample and we'll send it off for sequencing using some fancy machines and, and look at a particular sequence of dna that'll then be able to tell us uh, approximately what species or, or family of species that bacteria is from 
And our hopes with this is, you know, if we can determine if there are particular microbes that associate with some of the, the factors that we talked about, such as micron or yield or color as well, which is likely where we'll find most of our results from this, then that's something that we can utilize for producers to use or, you know, figure out other management tools to adjust that microbiome to provide a better return for two producers. Sure. Okay. And so you talked about, you know, you're going to use uh, genomic technology basically to identify the different microbes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what, just for some context, what, what do you expect to see? Are there going to be a, a couple different types of, of microbes? Is there going to be a whole host? Uh, do, you, do you expect to see a big variation? Um, this is, this is pretty new technology. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I'd love to hear some more about it. Yeah. Yeah, so I suspect what we'll we'll find, so we're taking it from five different parts of the body. So we've got a sample from the belly, a sample from the spine, the side, on the neck, and I think right around the rump, um, if I'm remembering right. And, you know, I think we'll see some differences based on the position of the body in terms of that distribution of species. In terms of the actual species, I'm not quite sure yet what we'll find, just because the previous papers didn't really say anything about a species. Sure. Um, they just did a, a old school bacterial count and they found that, you know, the belly has more bacteria than other parts of the sheep, which makes sense uh, since it's yeah. closer to the ground, they lie on the ground more and it's in contact. Um, so I think we'll see some variation between where we're sampling. Uh, we also did set it up. So we've got samples from different breeds. Uh, so the MSU flock is fortunate. We've got four purebred populations and you know, we'll see if there is a breed effect. They're all run together. So I, I don't know if we'll see a large one. And then finally, I think, you know, we will see a difference if we measure the color, you know, so it is known that there are certain microbial species that in response to some environmental conditions will produce kind of that canary yellow that sometimes you see in wool. Uh, so I think we might end up seeing some of that as well. Uh, and then lastly, this is more of a side note of it, but I think it could be a way to Uh, see if there are external parasites on our animals as well without having to shear them completely. Um, So I know you had an external parasite podcast a month ago, two months ago. Just a couple months ago, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so I I think the presence of those external parasites is likely to cause a change in this microbiome, uh, which is hopefully something we we can measure as well. So really trying to do a lot with it. uh, And it can go a number of different ways, but hopeful that it turns out the way, uh, way we're hoping. Sure. And so you said you're going to sample at a couple different age time points. You know, is this going to be a, a year long project, a couple of years? You know, when when do we need to sign you back up for the podcast so you can <laughs> share some results? So uh, we just took samples on the lambs born this year. Uh, we'll collect them again at weaning here in August. Uh, and then uh, we've got another time point at their first shearing. So that'll be next March for us. And then yeah. uh, we'll be sending the samples off for sequencing in batches. So, so give me a year, Jake, and, okay. and I'm happy to come back. Contrary to whatever. what you see on CSI and law and order, that sequencing and, and a DNA analysis, that doesn't happen overnight. No, no, <laughs> yeah. usually you hurry up, put it together, and then you stick it in the machine and then you got to come back for in a few hours. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. So I want to circle back. You, you talked briefly just a second ago about environment and how that can impact uh, color of wool. Uh, so I want to ask you, you know, whether it's weather or nutrition, uh, h- how exactly does the environment 
impact the quality or quantity of, of wool that a sheep produces? Environment has a huge role. So, you know, the way our, our sheep are designed and other fiber producing animals are designed as well is, you know, they're going to partition nutrients, you know, similar to all our other ruminant species. But unlike our other ruminant species, you know, they've got wool as well. And, and wool is something that'll constantly be grown. You know, there's no off switch. Uh, so, you know, if you start to run into either an extremely hot weather event or an extremely cold weather event, you know, you're going to, if you want to maintain that animal's ability to produce a uniform fiber along the entire staple length, you've got to, you know, increase how much feed you're giving to them, you know, maybe a more energy dense feed and things like that. Uh, so nutrition is really playing a really large role in what that fiber is going to end up as. Um, so if your animal, you know, say runs a fever or gets really sick, you know, that's oftentimes leads to what we call a break in that fiber where because of this nutrient partitioning, wool is generally one of the last things that is going to be getting nutrients after, you know, the necessary systems for survival, growth, uh, and things like that. So as fewer nutrients are given to that wool fiber, it gets thinner. And if it gets too thin, then it lead becomes very weak and can break. So Really, you do want to make sure that, you know, you've got quite a bit of, um, I won't say control, but have a really well-designed nutrient system if you're really shooting for the highest quality fiber you can produce. Um, so you can adjust for some of those environmental impacts. Um, also, too, sometimes we have to be careful if it's extremely wet environment. If your breed yeah. not quite adapted to it, you might have some mold growth uh, or fleece rot that we'll call it on some of our finer sheep or finer wool sheep uh, in some of those more wet environments. Um, okay. And, and the weather that doesn't just affect the wool itself. It also uh, visiting with you earlier can affect the way we measure wool. And so I think you've got a, a little project looking at how, you know, weather can impact the instruments that we actually use to take these characteristics and, and different quantitative measures. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, last year, we, um, as part of our, you know, Montana Wool Lab, they, they help collect for a number of wool pools, which I'm sure we'll touch a little bit on as we go through this. And uh, we've got an, an instrument we can take out into the field and measure the wool to give us a sense of what line we should be putting it into for sale. And one thing we've been finding is that when we've been testing it on our machine here in Montana, you know, we do send core samples from those lines down to New Zealand to get tested in a, a licensed lab and allow then, you know, for those lots to be sold on a, on a wholesale basis. And what we've been finding is that there's been a larger difference than we thought there would be between what it's tested in the field here in Montana and what they're testing down in New Zealand. So, you know, we decided to set up a little experiment where we've been evaluating temperature and humidity and the interaction between the two on how much that impacts that the fiber that we see here in the state. So we actually, or Brent Rader, our sheep extension specialist, instead of paying, you know, $40,000 for a scientific humidity chamber, we ended up um, buying a sausage maker. Uh, <laughs> so, cause it can control temperature and humidity just as sure. well. And yeah. it was probably a fraction of the price. So yeah. uh, we set up a different levels and things between our temperatures and our humidities and then ran it on our, our machine here in our, at the wool lab and, you know, didn't find a, a big impact of temperature, but we did see humidity, which makes sense since, 
wool can absorb, I think it's up to 35% of its weight in water. Um, and, you know, kind of looking at you know, the lab setting where everything is quite controlled, but in the field, depending on how that wool was stored, if it was stored on pallets or in a barn or, you know, we're collecting in spring, which is more humid for us than most of the year. Um, so those could be all playing a role and, and it does play, play a difference. Um, that is what we're finding. Cool. Well, our, our listeners can at least go to bed and rest easy tonight knowing that their state employees are, are being frugal with taxpayer dollars. So well, they appreciate Absolutely. that. <laughs> okay. So Montana state uh, and, you know, actually where I'm at here in, in Texas, uh, but Montana state is, is constructing a new wool lab. Um, and uh, for those that have, have never been to a wool lab or maybe unfamiliar with the kind of measuring process that we're talking about, it, it's pretty intensive. And, and when you walk into a wool lab for the first time, I mean, there's machines and all kinds of stuff everywhere, and it can be a little overwhelming. Uh, yeah. Can you explain some of the technology that is used to evaluate and measure these different characteristics of wool and, and get the data that you're talking about and using? Yeah, so probably the, our our main working horse in probably both of our labs is uh, what we call the OFDA, so the OFDA, uh, which sure. stands for Optical Fiber Diameter Analyzer. Uh, and we have a uh, OFDA 2000 is the most recent version that we, we're yeah. using. And and what that allows us to do is it's a, it's a laser that, you know, we take our fiber sample, we kind of spread it out a little bit on a, a plastic slide that's got some slits cut in it. Uh, essentially, and that laser then works its way down that slide and measures the fiber diameter in um, five millimeter snippets working its way down and gives you an idea of then what that fiber diameter is along the length of that staple, as well as it'll give you information such as the standard deviation of that or how uniform that those fibers are. Because really, you know, when you take a sample of wool or a staple of wool, it's not just one fiber. You've got probably a couple thousand there. So we're collecting it on all those fibers run at all the same time to give us a sense of, you know, yes, okay, you might have most of your fibers are between 18 and 20 micron, but you do have some kind of stragglers as they, you know, fall out on that distribution. Yeah. So we can look at, you know, the uniformity. We might can look at staple length. Um, and because the way the, the wool fiber is produced, it does have a curve to it or crimp. So we can measure that as well. And that plays a role in some, you know, processing techniques later on. And then um, we also can measure comfort factor or, you know, is essentially the percentage of fibers less than 30 microns. And that plays a role then in whether that fleece or that wool is going to be used next to skin or might be used for something else. So the OFT is probably the, the main workhorse. And this is that piece of equipment we can take out into the field as well. Sure. Uh, there's also a, a laser scan piece of equipment. So that's essentially doing a similar thing, except instead of going along the, the length of a fiber, you're cut it up into really small pieces, place it essentially in liquid, uh, either water or alcohol based, depending on, on what you have. And then similarly, it's shining a laser through and measuring the thickness of those fibers. And it's giving you similar information of, you know, how thick those fibers are, the, the diameter, uh, distribution, comfort factor, things like that. Uh, and really there's a lot of other equipment too. So if we're collecting for um, larger bales of wool, we might collect core samples. So I think both our labs have coring machines, which are kind of 
they look like medieval torture devices where you know <laughs> you're yeah. placing yeah you're placing your fleece in and it's collecting small you know cores similar very similar to collecting a hay core if you're going to send right. that off for forage testing um and then you know there's also a lot of other wet chemistry equipment so we can measure sure. yield and ash and and things like that yeah washing drying etc yeah cool yeah well, this is a, you know, this is a sheep centric podcast, but there's other animals that produce fiber. And so for discussion's sake, uh, can these same technologies, your lab also, uh, you know, is it prepared to, to measure and evaluate fiber from other species as well? Absolutely. So our lab, yes, you know, Montana wool lab runs mostly sheep. I think you guys at San Angelo are mostly sheep as well, but uh, you know, mohair, cashmere, goats sure. producing fiber, definitely. Um, you know, I can rattle off all the species. I think they've run bison, uh, alpaca is actually where we've seen a lot of our growth in our samples, um, uh, for us up here. Uh, then we've got vicuña, which is kind of a relative of the alpaca, but a really fine fleece. I know we've run muskox, so they yeah. produce a kiviet and then they're, they're, that's you know, really valuable. I think. Yeah. So <laughs> some of these are, so the, some of the vicuña samples, those are like $200 an ounce. Yeah. So, you know, they run the sample and then ship it back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then I even, there's been, I think, uh, Liz, who, uh, Liz Maxwell is one of our employees at the wool lab. She was telling me one time she had a, uh, somebody sent a sample in for a dog. Oh, um, so dog hair. So really any fiber we can run it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, that's really neat. And, and we'll be watching the the development of that Montana wool lab because I, I think that's going to be really cool and, and beneficial to the industry. So good luck with that. Thank you. Uh, and, and so, you know, the things you've discussed there, those are pretty standard, uh, I would say, or, or typical, maybe would be a, a better word, um, devices and technologies for measuring wool. But I, I know in your research, you also are, are taking it a step further and looking at a couple other things in, in the wool, namely... I think you're evaluating some hormones, uh, hormone levels, yep. if that's, if I'm correct. Can you share with us a little bit about your early findings with, with that work? Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, kind of taking a different track. So yes, you know, wool is an end product that we can okay. utilize for, you know, clothing, textiles, insulation, carpet, et cetera. But is there a way we can use wool as a non-invasive monitoring tool for our animals? And, you know, a lot of folks are already collecting a wool sample or know how to. It's really easy. You just need a set of clippers or really even hand shears. So it's a really straightforward process for a producer to collect this type of sample. So what we're trying to do with looking at the hormone levels in wool is there's been, I think, three papers out of Australia where they've been able to measure some of these different hormones, such as cortisol, which is a, a known stress hormone or related to kind of chronic stress, as well as, you know, if you're kind of flight or fright response in a, you know, you're startled, you'll have elevated cortisol shortly thereafter. Sure. As well as looking at um, progesterone, which is related to pregnancy and then testosterone as well. So they've looked at uh, and been able to detect these hormones within the wool sample itself. And what we're trying to do here now is see if we can optimize when is the ideal time to sample for, you know, say progesterone. So they did it late in gestation. And that makes sense. But can we test earlier? Can we do it at 30 days post breeding and detect progesterone in the wool? So that's what we're trying to do a little bit on the, the pregnancy side. 
And similar with the cortisol and testosterone, it's been shown that in two of those papers that elevated levels of those can actually tell you litter size from that sample, Wow, yeah, which is, you know, pretty impressive uh, considering sure. even, you know, looking at ultrasound, uh, it can be quite difficult to di differentiate multiples from singles sometimes. Sure. Yeah, um, that's really cool. Yeah, so we're, we're trying to figure out when's the best time to sample for this, as well as um, trying to look at more so on the cortisol, cortisol side is, you know, are sheep that, you know, are chronically stressed, are they more productive, less productive when it comes to some of our other production traits, such as fleece weights or uh, lamb production. Uh, so we're really just trying to see if we can use it as a monitoring tool, as opposed to just, you know, okay, we collect our wool sample, we you know, now we know how to use wool or how to process that wool the best way, uh, but see if we can actually use it as a non-invasive, yeah, monitoring tool for a flock. And maybe it can identify those animals that might be more prone to adverse health events um, and things like that. That's really neat. That'll be another thing that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll need to get you back on to yes. kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I'm only, yeah, just under two years in and COVID kind of put a delay on lab work. And yeah. so, yeah, I'll come back. Don't worry. <laughs> sure. Great. Now, you know, kind of to come full circle, we talked about some of your microbiome work, some of the stuff you're doing with the hormones and, and the various, you know, ways that you evaluate wool. Uh, but I also know that you're doing some work with wool color, uh, which is uh, a little trickier to measure. I, I believe there's an instrument out there, a colorimeter. I, I think you're looking into... Uh, using that instrument and optimizing the use of that instrument somewhat, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, would you mind sharing a little bit about that work too? Yeah. So this is a, a cool piece of equipment we just got here uh, last month. And really what it's going to allow us to do is, you know, you know, Jake, if you and I were to look at say an apple and an orange, you know, we might say it's, you know, red and I might say it's orange red or something of that sure. nature. And it's, you know, color is a very subjective Thing. Yeah. Um, yes. So it, it is quite difficult to objectively put a number to it. So what that's what uh, the colorimeter is going to allow us to do. You know, it's essentially similar, really talk a lot about lasers and light. So it shines a light on an object based on, you know, what reflects back from that. We've got a number of different ways we can then record those different wavelengths. And then that gives us a number we can attribute to that specific color. So this is what a lot of industries utilize to ensure that, you know, whatever plastic they're making is all the same color for large right. lots and things like that. So it's really applying the same technology that's in those fields to our field. And, you know, primarily we're going to see if we can use it to quantify the yellow that we occasionally see in some of our, our, our flocks and our, our fleeces, as well as see if we can better quantify some white so we can really select for really bright white fleeces, um, but then finally, you know, so I grew up with Romneys and you know, they come in a variety of different colors and want to see if we can quantify some of the colors that we see in our black and brown animals as well. So, you know, for those folks that raise hand spinning flocks or have these natural colored sheep, you know, there's quite a bit of variation in the shade and the tone of those those fleeces and some sell much better than others. So is there a way we can objectively quantify that? to allow us to do some type of selection for it uh, or get a better sense of what genetic markers are controlling some of these color traits uh, as opposed to just kind of relying on our eyes. Right. 
well, that, that, that'll be really interesting too. And, and I know you, I'm glad you just brought that up genetic markers and the genomic markers. Yeah. I know that you are a, a geneticist at heart uh, yeah. and in terms of your training and et cetera. And, uh, and so I, I wanted to ask you if you could overview um, some of the genetics, how, how genetics impacts wool characteristics. And if there's, you know, been some research, uh, here recent ish or, or stuff that you've done um, that you maybe like to share with us about the direction that genetics and, and science is, is looking at that genome and how it impacts wool. Yeah. So, you know, genetics, you know, I talked earlier about nutrition plays a large role in wool, but genetics also plays a large role in wool. Uh, so when you think about it, you know, we've selected our different breeds to have different fiber characteristics. So, you know, your merinos should be fine wool and, you know, and you've got your medium wools, kind of like your dorsets and, and things like that. And then your coarse wools on the other end. And really, you shouldn't be finding any merinos or rambolets with fleeces that are up at like 30 or 40 microns because, yeah, hopefully you're not. If you are, <laughs> yeah, please reevaluate. <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, we've selected. So, you know, there's a genetic potential for some of these fleece traits with inherent within each breed. So it is genetically right. controlled and you can make genetic progress on our fleece traits relatively quickly. So they are yeah. highly heritable compared to some of our other traits. So if, you know, you're running a commercial flock and you aren't necessarily happy with your wool clip, you know, if you're able to source the right rams, you can make fairly good progress in a few generations. Right. Um, in terms of kind of recent recent the yeah, recent research on some of these wool characteristics um you know we've got breeding values through nsip for wool production traits which is a great tool so if you're looking to increase your fleece weight reduce your fiber diameter and you've got a purebred flock and you know have connections within that within nsip a lot of this more molecular research right now is focusing a lot on, you know, we talked about the microbiome earlier, but a yeah. lot of folks are now looking at this transcriptome, which is essentially, you know, so we have our genome, that next step of getting that DNA to a protein. Um, so folks are looking a lot at RNA differences. A lot of this work is coming out of China, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and really, unfortunately, right now, they're looking at a lot of different breeds. So you look at different papers and they're kind of yeah. saying different things. But really what it comes down to is there's a lot of different genes and different pathways that are involved when it comes to that wool follicle producing a high quality wool fiber. Um, when we look at some of our other more uh, SNP markers, so the nucleotide change on the genomic DNA, and looking at some association studies, what's popping up for a lot of our wool traits, whether it's fleece weight or, you know, fiber diameter, a lot of our keratin related genes or yeah. keratin associated genes, which makes sense since sure. keratin is the primary protein in wool. Um, but unfortunately, you know, those haven't necessarily been replicated or validated quite yet. And again, been done in a number of different breeds, mostly in other countries. Um, kind of on the, the flip side. So we just talked about color. So I was fortunate enough to do a little bit of coat color work with my PhD. And that's actually, you know, how I got involved in genetics and passion for genetics um, was breeding funky colored sheep back in yeah. high school. Um, so we, you know, we do know the DNA markers related to Morit or brown color in sheep. So that's a recessive trait. So, you know, we found, uh, yeah, my, PhD work found the first markers in sheep in a tyrosine 
related protein one back in 2018. There's been a couple others discovered since and reported on out of, I think, Switzerland. Um, so I think there's three or four markers within that gene. And then for any of our listeners that breed, breed Jacob sheep, uh, there's this uh, dilution called lilac, uh, which just kind of makes it black front to more of a muted gray. Uh, and we found that also in uh, a melophon uh, gene as well. So there's there's been a, a, you know, I won't say a resurgence, but more interest in trying to find some of these markers, both with coat color as well as some of the other more um, complex traits uh, yeah. on the wool side. That's that's cool to hear about. So I got to know, you know, you did work in genomics for coat color. You had sheep with funky color. Did yeah. you test your own sheep? Uh, yes, I will say I collected my own animals. And um, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, the benefit of that was I knew the pedigrees. So it yeah, made sure. things a bit easier. Um, but yeah, yeah, I will say, I forget who I was listening to it. One of the very first conferences I went to, they were like, you're not a true geneticist until you test your own animals. Yep. There you <laughs> so, go. You know, I tried to accomplish that as quick as I could. <laughs> cool. Well, you know, we've, we've talked about genetic side. We talked about the environment and, and nutrition, but a, a big part of wool value is also how it is harvested. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, you are, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trained in a bunch of different areas, including shearing. And you have a passion for that trade. And, and so I, I was going to ask you to discuss some more uh, about the approaches that MSU takes and other universities about improving wool harvesting and wool harvesting technology. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if I wanted you to admit that on a national podcast, Jake, because I don't want to get called to shear everybody's sheep. Now, but, oh. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> it's all right. I'm happy to do it. Um, so MSU, I know uh, Texas A&M with you guys and a number of other universities really are trying to improve the quality of wool harvest. So they do that all through, mostly through offering shearing schools. So these are usually two, three day schools where either beginning shearers or depending on the level, there'll be multiple schools offered where we have trainers that have either been shearing professionally or have been instructed by folks down in Australia or occasionally we'll have instructors come over from Australia and really just trying to hone that technique and that art of harvesting the wool without, you know, cutting it off in the middle of the fiber, without yeah. cutting the sheep, without hurting yourself. Like there's sure. really a lot that goes into it. And you know, MSU, uh, so Brent Rader does most of the work for our shearing schools up here, and he does a great job organizing them, you know, and getting people involved and and getting shearers ready to shear professionally, whether that's, you know, going to be five or 10 sheep down the road from them or their own flock, or they're going to go on the, the shearing run and shear several thousand that year. So shearing schools are a really good way to improve the wool harvest. But I think it's important to remember too, you know, so shearing is one day but the wool is growing the other 364 days of the year as well. Yeah. So I think most of the extension programs across the country also offer some education in terms of maintaining that wool clip throughout the year. Uh, I know American sheep industry has resources as well in terms of maintaining that clip quality uh, throughout the year um, because, you know, we do want to get the highest quality wool off as we can uh, without impacting, you know, the value of it later on. Right. 
So how does someone that's interested in, in taking a shearing class or, or course or, or the wool classing course also, mm -hmm. uh, how do they get signed up or, or where do they go to learn more information? Probably first step for anybody interested in any of those is to reach out to your local extension office, uh, whether that's your county office or your state specialist. If your state has a, a small ruminant specialist, definitely reach out to them. They should have an idea of, you know, whether they offer it themselves or a sense of where to go for those types of opportunities. You can also reach out to your state cheaper and, and goat association as well. Uh, they should have an idea on where some of those schools are offered or might be offering them in conjunction with the extension programs. So definitely start with your extension agent, or if you've got, you know, a shear that comes in, but you're interested in learning more, talk with them. Likely they went to a school at some point or they've got connections you know, really, even when I started shearing out here, I've been surprised at how small a world it is and, you know, just networking with shearers from across the country already. So, you know, if they don't know of anything at the moment, they'll know somebody who does. So definitely reach out to local extension office, you know, your state specialist, your cheap uh, state groups or your local shearer. Yeah. Okay, great. So I appreciate you talking so much about, about your research and some of the activities that, that uh, Montana State's got going on. Um, it's a, a lot of interesting things coming up on the horizon, uh, and we'll be really following that closely. Uh, but as we wind things down here on the podcast, I, I did want to kind of ask you a, a philosophical question. And you did touch on it just a second ago. Uh, you know, what is your advice, you know, broadly, what is your advice to producers who wish to increase the quality of their wool uh, from their animals? That's a really good question, Jake. And I think, yeah, really my advice for that is to remember that, you know, you can have everything prepped and have a perfect shearing day, but if you forgot about the wool or, you know, had other, you know, it wasn't necessarily a focus the rest of the year, you know, you might not have the highest quality clip clip that you're looking for. So I think it's important for producers to remember that, you know, that wool is growing nonstop. So it can't just be focused on shearing day. You've got to focus on that wool clip throughout the year. So that means, you know, maybe you redesign your feeders so you're not throwing hay on top of their backs trying to feed them or they're not, you know, getting grain in the feed or, you know, I know we all do it, but try to refrain from tying gates up with polypropylene twine. It gets everywhere. <laughs> but it's so cheap. <laughs> it is very cheap, but <laughs> yeah, as, you know, if you're... Yeah, that stuff will contaminate everything. Um, so I think it's important to remember that, you know, yes, you want to harvest it the best way you can, but really growing wool in, is a, a year-round job. And you got to make sure if you want the highest quality at the end that you're taking care of it throughout the year, whether it's, um, you know, feeding slightly differently or changing your nutrient program or, you know, for hand spinners, if you want to put coats on your sheep as well, you know, that increases the value of that because it keeps a lot of the dirt out. Uh, it may not be feasible for everybody, but it does help manage that fleece throughout the year. Uh, and yeah, that would probably be my biggest piece of advice is just remember the wool. It's, is not, a, it's not a one-time event. Yeah. No, no, it's throughout cool. the year. Well, I, again, I, I appreciate you visiting with us today. Uh, it's really neat to hear about all the stuff you've got going on. Uh, you know, do you have any, do you have any final parting messages? Do you have something that our, our listeners can take away from, from our discussion today? Um, yeah, really 
Wool is a great product. All wool has value, whether it's for going to be going. That's from a big one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. I Too often I hear, you know, oh, wool's worth nothing. Wool's worth nothing. Well, you know, all wool has value. So I, I appreciate you saying yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. All wool has value and it. You know, you just got to figure out where it has the most value for you. And it might take a little bit of legwork in terms of, you know, doing a little bit of research, but, you know, I know some folks are either selling it as fertilizer or you can sell it for, you know, a couple bucks per bag for as wool mulch, you know, that's yep. what my mom's doing and gets a pretty decent return on kind of the skirting scraps and, you know, there, it has value. You just have to figure out where it needs to go for you to see that value or, sure. you know, see it in money. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again, Dr. Possberg, for, for being here today. Uh, wool is, is not the only commodity uh, that's produced by sheep, but it, it's certainly something that is is dear to the heart of, of many sheep producers. And, and I know our listeners have enjoyed hearing about your work and, and what you're trying to achieve. So thanks. Thanks for being on. Absolutely, Jake. It was a pleasure and uh, happy to talk about it. Sure. Uh, so for our listeners, catch us every month on your preferred podcast provider. Uh, make sure and share this uh, or any of our other episodes that you may have enjoyed uh, with your real life friends, with your social media friends, or just anyone that you think might be interested. Uh, but for now, remember, eat lamb, wear, buy, appreciate, share wool, and thank your flock of superheroes for providing us with it. Have a good day.